0: Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast, I'm Mandy jackson Beverly. Join me as I speak with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities, and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please consider sharing with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 153. Sunday Times bestseller, Lucy Clark, is the author of seven psychological thrillers, The Sea Sisters, A Single Breath, The Blue, No Escape, Last Scene, You Let Me In, The Castaways, and her latest novel, One of the Girls. Her debut novel was a Richard and Judy book club pick, and her books have been sold in over 20 territories. The Blue is currently being filmed for a seven part television series for Paramount Plus, due for release in 2023. Lucy is a passionate traveler, beach hut dweller, and fresh air enthusiast. She's married to a professional windsurfer, and together with their two children, they spend their winters traveling and their summers at home on the south coast of England. Lucy writes from a beach hut, using the inspiration from the wild south coast to craft her stories. Hi Lucy and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I love the artwork on your walls, especially that driftwood piece. It's gorgeous.
1: Ah, thank you. Yes, I've got um, driftwood stones from my godmother and um, yeah, a driftwood fish and just my plants and, and whatnot here. So yeah, this is my writing room at home.
0: Yeah, it looks lovely and bright. Okay, let's begin with finding out a little bit about you before we talk about your new book, One of the Girls. You spend winters traveling around the world with your husband, your other writing office is a beach hut, and you spend summers at home on the south coast of England. Honestly, your life sounds idyllic, but everyone has a becoming story. What is yours, and what were you doing before becoming a writer of psychological thrillers?
1: I was actually working in advertising uh, to begin with. That was my job straight out of university when I graduated. And I did it for a few years and just felt quite unfulfilled, really, in that role and uh, saved up some money. And my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, um, we spent six months traveling and we... Spent the first couple of months in Maui, living in this tiny little sort of shack in the middle of the rainforest. So my husband could windsurf. That's a particularly brilliant place for windsurfing. Um, And then we flew to LA and we drove up the West Coast right up into Canada and then went all across Canada and then back down the East Coast and flew home. And we had this wonderful six months of just being free i suppose and also having absolutely no money so we were kind of living off noodles and we couldn't afford to go anywhere or do anything so we slept either in the car that we had like on the floor of the car or in a tent and during that time i kept a travel journal and that was how i sort of filled my time We hiked, or i wrote and at the end of the trip i just knew when i got home i didn't want to return to the world of advertising I wanted to write. So that was the decision that I made. And it took me that was in my mid 20s. It took me till I was 30 to actually get my first book deal. So that was my sort of story to, to becoming an author.
0: The adventure you went on with your husband must have been so much fun.
1: There's so many beautiful places to see and we, we loved it. I think um In the UK, lots of uh, British people or, or students will take a gap year, and they'll have their year of adventuring. And I just felt that when we were away, I I knew I didn't want to give up the the travelling, and I wanted to have a career and a job where I could continue to travel and not be this like, oh hi, I've had a great year, but now it's back to real life. I wanted this, oh, the sort the non real life bit to continue because that was good. Um, we spent the next sort of 10 years uh, when I was writing and before we had children spending our winters abroad. Um, and now that we have two young children, our travels have taken naturally a, a different shape because we it's a welcome to school. So we have gotten a little bit more limited and we're still getting away. We have a van, a camper van now. So we do lots of trips. We've driven across Europe with the kids and um, around Ireland and Scotland and more local to home. But they're just not quite the the length of the uh, trips we might like to do. But that will come back. That will come back.
0: Yes, I hear what you're saying. My husband and I took our kids out of school and homeschooled when they were quite young. And we put them back into school later. But one of the reasons was because we wanted to travel with them. But that was a long time ago. It was when they were three and six and they're 27 and 30 now. And homeschooling was a little more radical back then. But uh, yeah, it was fun. We had a wonderful time. We traveled with them to Japan, to Australia multiple times, to Costa Rica. It was just so much fun. And honestly, it's a great way to learn about the world.
1: Oh, wow. How long did you do that for? How long did you homeschool them for?
0: I want to say about five or six years But the thing with homeschooling is that there are certain subjects that kids will breeze through quite quickly, and others that maybe they struggle with a little bit. So sometimes I brought in tutors to help them, or I did exchanges, I taught art and music, and another parent might have taught them science and math, math not being my subject at all. It was fun, but it was a lot of work, and that's what I stress, it is a lot of work. you kind of got to be fairly organized, which was hard for me. (laughs) But it was it was great. I would recommend it. It's just wonderful. But a lot of our friends and family thought we were nuts. Now with the pandemic, you know, many people worldwide had to homeschool while they were working remotely.
1: I, I love it. And it's something that's on our radar. It's just the thing that we face here is it's all fine to take them out and I would be very happy to homeschool, but it's the getting them back into the school system here is quite, quite the area we live. The, the, you lose your place in school. So it's one of the difficulties, but I, I think it's worth the risk because what an adventure.
0: Yes, it definitely was. Okay, back to you, Lucy. In a video on your website, you discuss doing most of your writing in a notebook. At what stage do you switch over to a keyboard? And do you use Word or Scrivener or another writing platform to complete the manuscript?
1: I tend to do my ideas and early scenes by hand. Um, I'll show you. I've got a journal in my drawer. This is one of them, a battered sort of leather journal. And I have very, I don't know if you'll be able to see, but just very tiny (laughs) writing. So I will do that um, in the kind of early stages where I don't want to kind of interrupt that flow of creativity. And then I will put it onto the computer. And it's not that I sit and, and type it up word by word because really it's, ideas that are unformed really. So when I then come to write, I can do it free flow on on the computer and I just use word. Um I don't have any special programs. I just have a a rule that when I'm writing, I work uh in the morning, I will work from 6:30 till 10:30 a.m. with my internet off and my phone off just so that I can have that clarity of thought at the beginning of the day before the world sort of crowds in. So that's sort of my only really writing
0: rule, I suppose, that I make. That's an excellent rule, because otherwise, it's impossible to get any writing done.
1: Yeah, and I, I think if you've got an imagination that does, you know, I'm very easily distracted, perhaps like most people, but um, as soon as I open up my emails, there'll be something else, someone needing something, and, I, and I'll and i be, you know, like, oh, anything that's easy, you know, rather than having, if you are a sticky point in a chapter or a scene, you're looking for distractions. I make sure there are
0: Yeah, one has to look out for those rabbit holes that just kind of suck you in for hours. Absolutely. Let's talk about your writing style because The Sea Sisters, Swimming at Night, The Castaway's Last Scene and your latest novel, One of the Girls, are written using multiple characters, points of view and time frames. For example, chapters titled Then, Now and Before. How far into the outline do you get before deciding on the point of view and chapter layout? I normally
1: find the point of view instinctive when I set out. So, with one of the girls, it's multi viewpoint, six women, each telling their own story. And I knew that from the outset. I just sort of just sensed that was the way. But I do, sometimes I might have an instinct and then later on as the story develops and changes, that instinct actually no longer serves the story. So with my um last book, The Castaways, uh, I wrote that book multi-viewpointed and then I realised there were so many things I couldn't share or that I didn't want to give away. It was spoiling some of the suspense and tension. So at quite a late draft, the the sort of penultimate draft actually, I had to switch it And I told the story, it had sort of five people originally, and it went down to two sisters who told the story. And the book works so much better for it. So I I have an instinct, but sometimes the instinct's incorrect, and I have to then fix it at the end.
0: Well, I'm sure that must have been a lot of work, changing the POVs so late in the story. But good on you for doing that and having that realisation.
1: Yeah, sometimes you've just got to, you don't want to have to do the work, but you're like, I don't have to do the work. And then just changed everything and it, it was a book I'd struggled with and then suddenly it just all came together and I think that was a real turning point for me it was just changing like I've got too many sometimes multiple viewpoints like in one of the girls six women it's a lot but it it works because they're equally weighted and each of their stories is is equal whereas in councilways it's the ensemble piece in a sense but actually what I realized in the writing of it was No, it's the story of two sisters. And so the other characters still kept their part, but their part was told through the sisters. So, yeah, it's it's a sort of technical thing, but that adds quite a bit of weight to getting it right.
0: Yeah, sometimes you just have to rip off that band-aid and reassess. Yeah. Lucy, a facet of your storytelling is taking people away from their places of residence, their comfort zone, to an unknown location. One of the girls takes place on a fictional island in Greece, and not all of the characters have money to spend on lavish vacations. How much time did you spend on character development before writing the story to understand how each woman would react to the beauty and tranquility of a remote, sophisticated villa on a Greek island?
1: Well, I would normally answer that, that I would spend lots of time, weeks, in, in fact, of, of researching and planning and writing character biographies. But actually, for one of the girls, it was a really different writing experience than anything that i had done before, because I wrote it during lockdown, which of course was an unusual time anyway. Um, and I came off social media. I stopped listening to the news. obviously had no messages firing because we were just all at home and everything just got really quiet and I had just handed in a draft of the castaways my previous book and I had a three-week window with nothing to do um or nothing sort of urgent to do so I was like right I'm going to just think about my next book and I knew I wanted to set it on a hen weekend because I was fascinated by those sort of I say hen weekend I should just say that's bachelorette in in US because I think it's a term you might not know um but yes and I spent two days only panning the novel, thinking, Hen Weekend, Greece, six women, four nights. Let's just pick a couple of things about each woman, put them in this villa, and see what happens. So I spent barely no time on planning these characters. And it was so strange because as I just started writing as each of them, not knowing who they really were, a voice for each of these women. Unfolded. And I've never had a writing experience like that before because character work is often something, certainly in my earlier books, I really struggled with. And it would take layers and layers of drafting, redrafting before I finally was like, yes, okay, now I know my character. Whereas in one of The Girls, it came immediately. And that first draft took me 17 days. And a typical first draft takes me like eight months. It was, it was mad. And I was only working mornings because I was also homeschooling. So it was just bizarre. And, and, I, and I loved it. And I just think, I don't know, sometimes plot is easier to access when it comes out of character, because I allowed these women the space to be who they really were. Whereas when I intricately write and structure and plot a novel, I'm then having to make sure my characters behave in certain ways to fit a plot and it can lead to quite wooden interactions and therefore the the characters you know maybe there's just a slight disconnect so in one of the girls the, the plot completely grew from the character I didn't know the plot other than I knew someone on that hen weekend would kill and that was all I knew when I set out.
0: That's a great starting point. And what struck me about one of the girls was how much alcohol the women drank over the few days they were celebrating the hen party. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it got me thinking, is this kind of heavy drinking considered the norm for British women in their 30s? Or did you write this to show how we drink to hide pain and depression? I'm a recovering alcoholic and have been sober for 35 years. And I remember reaching my peak of partying in my early 30s. And for me, drinking was to hide pain and depression. And I definitely saw this in a few of your characters.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's both what you said. It's both a cultural thing in our country where you almost could not go on a hen weekend and not expect at least half, if not all the group to be heavy heavily drinking um I actually am not much of a drinker myself so it's kind of frowned upon if you go on a hen weekend and I'm the sort of person that's like oh I'll just have one glass of wine and everyone else will look horrified that you know that is so boring that's so boring and you'd have all the peer pressure um so yes it's absolutely cultural but also There are certain characters in the book, which you will know, who are absolutely using it as a tool to hide from what they're feeling and having really uncomfortable emotions and wanting to not experiencing them. So they're covering them through alcohol. So, yes, it's a mix of, of, of both cultural, but also hiding something deeper.
0: It was definitely a touch of realism for me. And what I love about stories is that they can trigger emotions and bring them to the surface, which I find fascinating. Now, my regular listeners will know that I'm always looking for the threads that kind of weave out in the universe and pull us all together. And your novel, A Single Breath, is set in Tasmania. That's where my family lives and where I went to school. So that's the thread. Now, I've always found the island exquisitely, geographically dramatic, but it's also drenched in a dark, dark history. How did you feel about the island of Tasmania? Was it 2011 when you first visited?
1: I spent two winters there. Um, I think it was 2011 and two years before that as well, 2009. Good friends of ours emigrated. Uh, One of our friends is a marine biologist and him and his wife uh, moved out there. So yeah we we um absolutely fell in love with Tasmania because like you say the the landscape there is so rich and varied and you've got you know the mountains the sea rainforest it's incredible um not that many people which i love so i really i really felt a connection to the place and and if it were nearer to my home in the UK i would absolutely consider moving myself but it's just too far for me with family so yes it's it's a place where I actually set a single breath on an island a fictional island off the coast of Tasmania which I call Wattleboon Island but it's based on Bruni Island which you will know Um, and I loved our time on Bruni I learned to dive out there my friend who's a marine biologist taught my husband and I to dive and we swam with sea dragons and rays, and it was just It was magical. And we camped and, you know, again, not much money, just did it basically. And what I really loved about the Tasmanian way of life was that so many locals owned shacks, these like, you know, lovely, just basic cabins in the middle of nowhere. And that's where you'd holiday a simple existence. And that really spoke to me. And I just felt like I would love to set a book in a shack in Tasmania and why is why does someone take themselves off to the shack? Who's that person? What's happened to them to draw them out there? How does that place change them? And I think those are the questions that I'm all, always asking and interested in, in fiction. When we're taken out of our everyday life and put somewhere new, how do we react and do we flourish or do we flounder, you know, and and that journey we go on is what I find interesting.
0: Yes. And I really like that facet of your stories, that underlying tension of taking people out of their comfort zone. It works. Okay. I would love to hear your publishing story from your first finished manuscript to signing with an agent and a publishing deal sure
1: so as you know i decided to be a writer on my travels in the us and canada i was about mid-20s then and i came home and i decided to write my first book Um, i did it alongside having a sort of part-time job so i could keep afloat financially And it probably took me two and a half years to write this first manuscript. And I didn't do a class or anything. I just learned by, I went to the library and took out all the books on how to write a novel. I'm a voracious reader, so I would read lots, work out what I was enjoying and why, and annotate all the books that I read, apart from the library books. And then after I finished the novel, I sent it off to literary agents. I got that book, which I'm sure authors in the US use, the Writers and Artists Yearbook. Um, And it missed all the agents and I found ones and wrote to them just the normal process and I was lucky enough to have an agent say yes I love the book come in and have a meeting and um, she signed me up and I thought yeah this is it here here I go I've got a literary agent but actually the book didn't sell so it went out to all the publishers it didn't sell and I was bereft because I thought the fact had an agent I thought yeah, that was it I've done the hard bit because everyone always says getting an agent is sometimes harder than the publisher but I didn't sell and so I thought my agent might drop me because I hadn't made her any money and she just said you know look you just take a deep breath and you go away and you write the next book and that's what I did I spent another two and a half years writing actually a book The Sea Sisters which is about travel journals, which is exactly what I had been doing with my life at that time anyway, traveling and keeping a journal. And I it became, it was sold all over the world. My agent got brilliant, brilliant deals, you know, it's sold everywhere. Um, and I, I, it just blew my mind because I didn't even know, I, had, I was saying like, you know, my ambitions were very small. It was maybe I could get it printed in this country. And then it just went to how you can get your book translated into you know how many languages. Um, so that was sort of my my journey to getting published. And I got a two book deal with Harper Collins in the UK, and I'm still with them now. Uh, one of the one of the girls is my seventh novel, and in the US, I'm published with um, Putnam. So yeah, it's been an amazing it's been an amazing career. Like I I, I love it. It's not that it's amazing and it's all wonderful and golden because there really are highs and lows on it. And I've had, had many of both. But it's a job where you are so free because you can choose what you write. You can choose the way that you write, the place that you do it. And I think for me, I decided that I, when I had my first book rejected, I knew that I loved it so much that I wanted to write whether I would get published or not. And it took away a lot of the pressure because I think when you start writing and you make that decision, I want to be published, there's a huge pressure that we put on ourselves to think, well, if I don't get this book published, it's because I'm no good and I'm never going to make it. But if you enjoy the process and you take that being published or not out of the equation, because I was supporting myself anyway with a part-time job like most writers then actually, it's really freeing. And then I didn't think it's a one book thing. I thought I might write eight books or 10 books and get none of them published. But if I enjoy it, then wonderful.
0: I think there's magic in your words, take being published out of the equation. I think that takes the stress out of writing and the words flow easier on the page, hopefully on a good day. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, you mentioned you were a voracious reader. So what are you currently reading?
1: I'm reading a non-fiction title at the moment called Saltwater in the Blood um, by an Irish female surfer called Easty Britain. and it's really beautiful. It's her meditations on surfing and the cycles of the ocean and menstruation, and it's just a beautiful not uh, not novel but non-fiction to sort of dip in and out of. And I'm I'm loving it. It was a gift actually, and I love it when someone someone knows me really well and picks me an amazing book so I'm really thrilled with it.
0: And is there a particular book you'd like to see more people reading?
1: My favourite book is called Dirt Music by Tim Winton who's an Australian writer and I think if you were interested in beautiful writing about landscapes and seascapes and kind of rugged settings it would absolutely float your boat it's so beautiful so I would recommend
0: Dirt Music. I'm going to have to pick both of the books you recommended up because they both sound beautiful. Lucy, thank you for taking time out of your hectic schedule to be a guest on the Bookshop podcast. And I wish you all the best with your new novel, One of the Girls. You've made me want to go to the Greek islands.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It's been so nice chatting. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure.
1: Thank you. I love you to meet you.
0: You've been listening to my conversation with Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Clark. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly and check out my website at MandyJacksonBeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to the podcast.brassprout.com, Click on the little orange heart in the right hand corner of the page and you can donate using PayPal. Your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.